You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Welcome to this uh, interesting discussion this morning, looking at the challenge, uh, attempting to challenge the backlash against the globalization which we've been witnessing, and there'll be a bit, there'll be a lot more on on that during the two hours that we've got, or less, I think, than two hours. And let me not only welcome those of you who are here, but those of you who are joining us uh, remotely. I think that it's going to be a very interesting discussion, but of course, first we are going to be having uh, the presentations by uh, the four panelists who are exceedingly knowledgeable in, in, in this area and would be coming to it from, from different, um, different aspects. Um, the globalization has really been around in some form or the other for a very long time, but of course within recent years, the impact of technology has meant that it could get to a certain level that would have been impossible historically. Of course, during Roman times, during the entire empire, there was there there, there was um, there was there, there was trade within within the within the empire. The modern globalization, of course, is not only enabled by technology, the advances in shipping, um, refrigeration, all of this, which make, makes makes um, makes this possible, but it is there's there's another element because globalization now is is different in certain ways from what it was before because it is not just about the liberalization and free circulation of the of the goods but the actual integration of the processes at a a, a global a global level and uh, one of the things which I think later on we are going to be doing would be looking at a recent publication on, um, on, on global value chains. The, uh, the attacks on, on globalization, of course, come largely within the recent years, largely from two areas. Those who feel that they have lost out as a result of changes in comparative advantage, etc., um, though they are those are sort of the Rust Belt type, where there has not been accommodation or, 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 or adaptation, so they are they are they are poorer. Uh, so you get the opposition both at the level of unions, um, the workers, etc., but also governments, where countries 
themselves have not sought to, to adapt and they are getting poor, so they, so they fight back against this. But then you also get um, those who see problems associated with globalization, though they are not coming specifically from globalization, but they are all, almost incidental, often problems that are associated with exploitation of workers, because that is, um, that is, is enabled, problems of, of exploitation of the environment, etc. Et, et so you have a mix of reasons why there, there is this, um, this, this opposition to, um, to globalization. The putting, uh, uh, putting things in, in perspective would be the, uh, our, our, first, um, our first speaker this morning, um, Dr. Mendez Para, who is with the ODI here. He's a trade economist, and, um, and since we're talking globalization, it's very interesting that his um, area of, of study is in, in the most um, sensitive of the trade areas, which is, is, is agriculture. Uh, and um, as an Argentinian, I I'm sure that um, what has happened to Argentinian beef over the over the years would be something that he would be very uh, he'd be very sensitive to. Uh, he has been involved with the the global negotiations, uh, the the WTO level, both in both in agriculture as as well as as NAMA. So I, I would I would I would first want then to gi give him the the floor. To, uh, to, uh, to present his overview of, of the issue. So Max, you've got the floor. Yes, thank you very much, and thank you very much all for coming and for listening to me. Uh, well, yes, I think that uh, what I would like to start is a bit of how you place trade within this globalization backlash. Uh, what is not definitely the only dimension of this globalization backlash, it includes other dimensions that consider from the, the cultural aspects to also the immigration, but also I think trade is one of the most visible one, uh, and is an element that is particularly under attack by, uh, by these populist leaders and this rhetoric against uh, globalization. It is uh, particularly uh, uh, an aspect that is easily to, to link uh, with, with the foreign, with the, the, those aspects, and is in that sense constitute an, an easy and available direct scavatory goat for, for, for this uh, 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 rhetoric. Uh, I think there are many studies that are uh, uh, looking into understanding what are the reasons behind, specifically from the trade aspects behind the, 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 the globalization backlash. Uh, we can name a few uh, clearly technological change happening in, in the last uh, uh, decades or so has played a role where these changes might have, uh, rather than have a more uh, uh, complementary role to, to labor, may have been starting to substitute some labor or not 
uh, and some of these changes might have been uh, uh, induced or, or, or stimulated by the, the trade. So it's the, the connection between trade and technological changes. Probably trade has actually generated the condition for a further technological change. Uh, clearly, uh, from the economics uh, 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 analysis, there has been, a, a, what I would say, a lack of uh, emphasizing of the, the cost that probably trade adjustment are. I think that in that sense, I and mean, in terms of critique to the economy, it's self-critique would be to be more honest in, in the communication of the effects of, of trade. But as a consequence of that, uh, in part, must be a lack of domestic policies associated to deal with these uh, uh, trade adjustments. So basically, these start to things start to generate a, a feeling against trade in many countries, not only in developed countries, but actually we will say also in developing countries as well. At the same time, probably, well, you are very well the, the uh, dismantlement of the welfare state in, 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 in across the world, in the developed, but also in many developing countries, has also played a role in generating these conditions. Uh, but also, I, I want to stress that in this uh, anti-globalization feeling that takes this also this uh, uh, attack to some of the multilateral rules and multilateral organizations is the poor record of the compliance of the rules, specifically by uh, the developed countries. So there is a, a research that has been done by, for example, Simon Evnet, that has been tracking how G20 countries have been complying with the, uh, with the multilateral rules. And there, what you can see is that actually they have, not only they have no compliance, but also they have tried to have an attitude of, let's try to get this and to try to get away with it. I mean, this idea of not complying because uh, to try to take an advantage of that. So I think that that kind of things has also affected into uh, uh, this globalization backlash. So what sort of manifest, how is this manifested in the trade area? What are the specifically the, the things that we are saying in a specific part of policies that we are seeing that is uh, uh, affecting? First, we are seeing a proliferation of binational provisions across the world. I mean, it's a sort of programs to enhance the, the, the increase of the domestic value added as a policy per se, I mean, particularly to increase the share. I mean, how much of the product is made domestically uh, there have been threats to increase tariff and sort of border adjustment taxes. So we hear Trump talking about big tax. I mean, all the time he said big tax, not only against foreign firms, but also against American firms that decide to outsource production or to participate in value chains in, 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 in this fragmentation of production. So you say there is always this threat of, of a big tax. Uh, there is also an increase in, in the on the focus on uh, intra-regional trade as a policy objective. So it's nothing wrong with increase the trade with your uh, neighbors, but when it becomes an objective, a policy objective, that is something that you need to be careful that because easily you can enter into what is called the trade diversion type of effects where you are replacing efficient uh, producers by an inefficient local or 
regional producers. This is something that is particularly uh, acute in, in many developing countries, as we see in, in, in Africa. This idea of increased intra-region trade as an objective, not as a tool. Uh, as I said, well, there is a direct undermining and attack of the, of the multilateral organizations and a sort of uh, uh, increase the bilateral uh, uh, approaches, but focus more with a sort of mercantilism approach. I mean, it's this idea of bilateral, but this think of, and we hear it all the time from Trump, this idea is that Germany is making a lot of, of out of America and of the Chinese without having this sort of interpretation of trade as a sort of a zero-sum game uh, uh, is, is quite typical. So how value chains uh, uh, fit into this? And this is important because value chains has been a, a sort of an emergent of this globalization process in the last uh, 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 25 years, we can say. I mean, together with the, with the uh, information uh, and communication uh, revolution, the policies, the agreements, not only in terms of tariff, but many deep integration agreements that have worked into harmonizing regulations, working in the regulatory framework, have facilitated the emergence of this uh, 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 value chain phenomenon, this fragmentation of production, where production lines, production, production process are split into different countries uh, uh, regionally. But I would say, in the, particularly in the case of developing countries, they tend to have a, 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 a global perspective. The information technology has allowed, on the other hand, basically the possibility of controlling and monitoring this uh, uh, production process, and actually that many of the uh, uh, links of the chain are participating into forward or backward linkages by monitoring those, those chains. So actually, this is the no longer the sort of ship and forget type of, of approach, but basically a sort of participation in a, in a, in, in, in a, in a complex process. Developing countries in particular have been very involved in this process, uh, where in, some, in their cases, no more just this sort, as I said, the ship and forget of raw materials to say, send iron ore, and I forget about that, this is a problem of the producer, but actually they are participating into this value chain, uh, how they have transformed many of their production processes to meet the requirements of the production chains. I mean, these are Tesco or, or Waitrose that are participating in going into the, the, the providers and tell them, well, we need the production to have these and these characteristics. The product needs to be this of these characteristics. So it's not just they are involved into the production process. In other cases, they also have managed to manage some of the value chains. So it's not just that they are being managed by a, a, a store of a, of a supplier in the destination country, but also in many cases, they have managed to, uh, to control or to monitor these uh, uh, chains, primarily in chains that are oriented to supply uh, the respective regions. Uh, in some cases, they have managed actually to, to upgrade some functions and some products, so from the standard 
uh, provision of, let's say, uh, uh, fruits or vegetables, they managed to upgrade uh, the, the production process. And clear examples we can say in Vietnam, where they are, for example, now they are working into the, the design of, of vehicles. They are no longer just assembling vehicles, but now there are many design of vehicles that is done in, 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 in Vietnam, for example. Uh, and the other thing in contrast that, that is probably uh, different in, in developing countries is generally there is some, some that says that uh, that value chains tend to have a more regional approach, this idea of regional factories, factory Europe, factory Asia, factory uh, US, but that probably applies more to uh, uh, developed countries in products like uh, vehicles or, or electronics, for example. However, when we are considering the value chains in which the developing countries participate, they are truly global. We are seeing uh, uh, products uh, 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 produced in Africa that are marketed in, in, in the UK, textiles and garments from, from Bangladesh, etc. So in the case of, of developing countries, uh, this has a truly global dimension. So what does it mean, the globalization backwards means in the context of this organization of production? Clearly, the protectionism in a single link of the chain uh, will affect the competitiveness and the productivity of the whole chain. So it's no longer a thing that if someone puts a tariff, I can try to find a, an alternative destination. This will require a complete reengineering of, of the chain. This is like putting a door or, or a barrier within a factory. You need to completely change the way of uh, uh, that you organize production. This also have uh, uh, an effect, a knock-on effect on the rest of the member of the chain. So uh, uh, a measure, a tariff, or a, a protectionist measure into, uh, uh, into a link will have effect into the di direct affected, but also they will have no count into the rest of the countries. And also the effect spread into the domestic market. As the domestic firms uh, uh, also participate in this value chain, even when they are not directly trading. So clearly, the globalization backlash goes deeper into the trade, but also into the domestic economies of, uh, of the countries involved. So I think there is, in general, a, a, a view of, of that, uh, just to, to summarize, that uh, globalization, this globalization backlash is, is, is a bit not sustainable in the sense that, given that these uh, uh, globalization forces are too strong, in a sense, have been uh, uh, operating in the last 20 and 25 years, and they have uh, uh, affected the production process so deeply, they said that this globalization backlash will be a transitory effect that will be forget, and at some point the globalization forces will become stronger. Others seen that actually many firms are starting to reorganize their, uh, uh, their localization strategies, assuming that they will be clearly a, a retreat of globalizations. Whatever the, 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 the possibilities, clearly the damage in the short run is expected to be uh, uh, serious. And it's specifically on the value chains that is need to be specific attention and a specific care 
on the way that this is dealt. This is no longer the way that protectionism operate before, but this protectionism will go deeper into the uh, economic structures of the countries involved. So I think the, the value chain analysis need to be, the, the, uh, and the fragmentation analysis need to be carefully understood at the time of designing policies to deal with these uh, uh, aspects of the globalization factor. Thank you. Well, well, well thank, thank you very much for, for that, Max. I, I think you, know, you really have, have set the scene for the, for the discussion uh, later on. And um, the, the, the very last area that you have um, touched on, I think, has some very serious policy implications because a lot of the uh, authorities that uh, support and, and advocate uh, this um, protectionist um, um, uh, uh, move do not probably always appreciate the impact that this will be having on their own national production. And I, I think you're, you're clearly establishing that that link was, was, was important. Um, we, we, will, um, we will come back to, to that theme, I'm, I'm sure. And uh, now, now uh, we will have um, Dr. Keane, who is the economic advisor of the Commonwealth Secretariat. She is responsible for involving global, global advocacy and uh, looking at uh, emerging trade issues and supporting the trade uh, the global trade architecture. So I think who better to to work on issues of um, sustainable sustainable achieving the sustainable development goals via via trade. Um, she is really the, the, the right person. And I, I think that um, Jody was very much involved in the publication that has just been completed. And I'm sure in her presentation, she will speak a bit more about this. Jody. Thank you. Incidentally, everyone, um, we'll have 10 minutes. I, I did give Max a, a little, a, a bit of leeway, but that was only because he was setting, setting the scene. Thank you very much. Good morning, everyone. I'm really delighted um, that you're, you've all managed to join us uh, at this early start. And just thank you also to the panellists. Um, Daria is on her day off, actually, so we're really delighted that you could join us. And Nigel, thank you so much, too. And Max and I have been um, working together, um, I think we began kind of last year, and we started to try and kind of pull out and, and look at the um, GV, new GBC databases that had arisen and try and pull out and look at a more kind of disaggregated level, look at how our members in the Commonwealth are positioned in GBCs. So I'll just add a disclaimer that um, everything that I'm saying is are they're my own views and they're not um, the views of, of the Secretariat. So I am just going to run through you today um, kind of just touch on some of what Max has discussed in terms of the backlash that we're witnessing now um, on globalisation. And then I'm going to move on to talk about the implications for our members, uh, many, the majority of which are small um, island developing states. And then I'm going to talk about um, the effects of this backlash on 
GVC participation at the global level and also at the regional level. And then I'm going to talk about um, the future and, and potential future fragmentation because that's what we've been looking at um, at the Secretariat. And then I'm going to wrap up. Um, so as Max has uh, discussed, you know, we're seeing this, this backlash and it's really happened since the global financial crisis of 2008. And we now have, you know, we, we now know that there's been a rather profound shift in the relationship between the, the trade and growth. This trade growth nexus has changed and it's quite dramatic. Um, so all kind of governments are, are grappling with this. And at the same time, since the crisis, there's been a kind of shift amongst the dominant hubs of global economic activity. And some of this is presented in our future fragmentation publication. So since the crisis, um, the share of Asia in global production networks has continued to rise, whereas the share of the US and EU has continued to decline. And what we've seen is that um, China's China has kind of shifted towards um, the use of greater domestic value added in its production. So you've got this shift amongst the three dominant hubs. We've got a profound shift in the trade growth nexus. And we're now, you know, we can see quite visibly that um, protectionism is on the rise. We, we've had this um, recent development um, at the G20. Some are saying that the trade facilitation measures are kind of counteracting um, the protectionist measures. But nonetheless, this is, this is where we are at the moment. Um, so what does this mean for our members? Well, they've, most of the, the members are small island states and they have highly concentrated export baskets so, and, and they have very high trade costs as well and this is because of structural constraints as well as geographical. So any moves that kind of increase trade costs, you know, this can have very damaging um, economic and um, social effects. And these, some of these effects can be permanent because market shares can, can change, you know, amongst firms. So I think we have to be um, very, very live to this. Um, and we also have to confront the fact that we have big challenges in terms of monitoring um, the, the uh, in increases in protectionism and the effects that they might have on our members. We're kind of really um, flying blind. Um, so we don't, you know, none, none of the Pacific or Caribbean are covered in UNCTAD Train's NTB database. We have a lack of information also on services trade restrictiveness measures. So we might know, you know, what's going on at the G20, but we don't really know how that's um, subsequently, what, what are the knock-on um, effects? So we really have um, a challenge here. So, what you know? So, given these developments, what are the effects on uh, global value chains and, and regional value chain development? I think Max has um, touched on the point about the the moves towards um, kind of increasing shares of domestic value added. You've got the kind of Buy America initiatives, and that's been going on for quite some time. More recently, you've got these moves to kind of take back control. Um, but as I think Max pointed out, that um, these are very mercantilist-style policies, and they can actually turn out to be beggar thyself, because we're in a world of deeply interconnected um, production networks. So who really has control? It's not that easy to take back control because governments don't have the control over the production in the way that they used to. So this is, this is, this is a challenge. Um, 
just as we have, just as we're kind of flying blind when it comes to um, protectionist measures, you know, we're re relying on perception-based surveys, but we don't really have, you know, more systematic reviews that are needed. We also ha have a, a challenge in terms of um, seeing what the effects are on global and regional um, value chain development, because we all bought into these new trade and value-added databases after the crisis around 2013, 2012. We had a lot of big reports coming out. Everyone was talking about get into GVCs, and now just a few years later, we're suddenly all pulling back, and we don't know, um, you know, when when will we will developing countries will we continue to measure how they participate. We've got questions over UNCTAD's role on, on uh, measuring trade in value-added. Will it continue? This? And we have the WTO OECD database, but that doesn't cover developing countries. And we have a World Bank database now, but it uses different definitions compared to OECD uh, WTO. So we kind of have a challenge there um, too. Um, and this matters because... So we, we, you know, we've got this rise in protectionism, we've got this shift amongst the dominant hubs. So we know that the kind of fragmentation mechanism has entered a new new phase, but we still have a challenge in trying to um, monitor really what's what's going on. So what we've been trying to do at the um, Secretariat is we've been trying to kind of take stock over um, you know what's happened in recent years and um, how our look more closely and carefully about. Um, regarding how our members are, are participating, and this is in a um, future fragmentation publication that will be available live by the end of this week, I've been promised, an e-copy um, version, because we're very environmentally friendly. And um, there are four main sections. We kind of look at the global developments. We also cover commodities. You know, often in the GVC literature, commodities are just... Um, glossed over. We also cover some thematic issues, trade and tax issues that that includes there. And then we also run through kind of sectoral developments. And then finally, we move on to policy um, perspectives. And this is where um, Daria, we're very grateful to your um, help for us on, on, on that section there. But I'm just going to zoom in because we also, through our work with Max, we've also been trying to undertake more careful kind of disaggregated analysis for the small states in the Caribbean and the Pacific and this is because often they're lumped together so it's quite that's another um, challenge to, to trying to look at um, what, what exactly is going on so we've tried to um, look at what's hap what's happened in recent years in the Caribbean um, and we know that um, over time um, the contribution of the Caribbean's um, value-added to world exports, it, it has actually declined since since 2000. I mean, we know generally the region specialises in, in services. You've got a few um, commodity exporters there. But our analysis does suggest that um, in kind of archetypal GVCs, such as um, textiles and clothing, um, electrical um, uh, machinery and, and fisheries, actually, that... that um, indicators of GVC participation for those sectors has declined. So that's obviously um, a concern. But again, we only have the data. The data is already quite outdated. And we've gone through a global trade slowdown. We've had a rise in, in protectionism. So we don't know what's happened really um, since. And that is something that I think we should all be um, rather worried about. Um, there is some evidence of um, regional value chain development also. 
Um, it does suggest that Trinidad and Tobago is playing um, a, a role there. But again, the picture is quite mixed. And I think we have to be very cautious as well, the quality of the data. And that's you know something that really does need to be addressed. So just to kind of wrap up, um, trading relations, relationships are being um, radically transformed. And I don't think that's going to stop, actually. We, you know, we've got new technologies coming on stream. I think blockchain, Daria might talk a little bit about that. But, you know, these, these are innovations that have the potential to further radically um, transform trading relationships. Um, and we've got, you know, we've got this, the, the rise of global value chains. It does bring to um, the four kind of issues around control, who really controls, how can you take back control? How do you govern, you know, you, you need to adapt your trade governance kind of structures to this, this new reality. And I think we also have to um, kind of zoom in and, and focus a bit more on um, this, this debate on technological advancement and the kind of impacts, you know, because you, you're, if you're, you know, if you need to constantly upgrade and you're, you're upgrading um, economically and socially, and this is about technological advancement, and so it, it does mean that you need a different sort of institutional setup, and I don't think we've really um, uh, got that um, right. I think what we're seeing at the moment is a kind of reflection of some of the in inadequacies, really, of, of um, trade governance. So I'll just conclude um, with the, um, you know, an emphasis on we really do need to get a handle on, on these um, data constraints. Thank you. Thank you very much, Judy. So it's, it's clear that there's still a lot of um, work to be done, and uh, we're all looking forward to that um, publication. As you say, it will be out by the end of, of, the, of the week. As as quite interested to hear the phrase that you used. I don't, I don't know whether uh, you just invented it, but if if you did, congratulations on on beg beg myself. You know it is. Uh, I, 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 it, it might um, it might well go down in, in a few maybe in, in fifty years time just as you know we've been we when we look when we speak of the policies of the thirties you know uh, yes there was the other the other phrase then maybe this might be the phrase that will will um, indicate demonstrate or well maybe indicate the unintended consequences of some of the policies when we we, we next have um daria whom you 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 have uh, in, introduced to a certain extent daria is with the is, is is with the world bank she's been involved in uh, she's an economist in trade and competitiveness global practice quite a mouthful of that group in, in, in the bank. Um, she has um, been working on a number of, 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 of issues before in, in, this, in, in this area. She's, she was previously with the European Central Bank, I understand, OECD, when I, I think when we probably did, did meet. Um, and um, we're very grateful to, to Dari as well for having taken uh, her day off to be here with us. So, Daria, you've got the floor. 4th of July. <laughs> but I'm not American, so it's fine. <laughs> Thank you for inviting me. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, so, uh, the, the topic uh, I, I will focus on uh, is uh, whether it's more difficult to join global value chains and to upgrade, to develop from it, 
um, given this new context, uh, which I like to call the two catastrophe scenarios. Either everything moves to China or everything moves back to the US slash the UK, Europe, whatever. What I do believe, and I, I, I think I'm an informed optimist, is that, in fact, we will not see any of these catastrophe scenarios, but there will be as many challenges that are being created as opportunities. And I would try to walk through where some of the opportunities for the uh, new developers that interpret the current mega trends of our times, which is globalization and ICT, where can they find uh, these opportunities? Uh, so the first is that, uh, and in doing that, I actually will challenge a bit uh, three, three um, let's say, uh, common way of thinking, at least in the news, right? Uh, one is that uh, uh, GVC are now more established. Some, even in my organization, speak about the GVCs are maturing. There is less opportunity for, at least at the extensive margin, for new uh, actors to come in. But then, uh, in fact, when we really try to look at the very detailed trade data, we see two things. First of all, uh, there has been a general uh, trade slowdown, but those, those parts of trade that we can more closely connect to GVC trade actually have, are the ones that have slowed the least. So they remain the most dynamic part. Uh, and the GVCs are actually working in the knowledge sphere. So they're moving away from the pure manufacturing and embracing services. And that's why a lot of what I will say will include services, but not as an abstract element or separated from manufacturing, but really thinking that services manufacturing increasingly are very interdependent. And in fact, it's a bit of a statistical artifact to keep thinking of them in a separate way. Um, the second, uh, uh, the second uh, um, element that, uh, that says that GVCs are maybe uh, not more established is that uh, we heard a lot about reassuring, but actually the figures, they are very small. And so you, I really uh, have the sense that a lot of the hype around reassuring is uh, over, overestimated, inflated. Um, so... This is one point. The second point is that uh, countries uh, that are deeply involved in GVCs, so we tend to think that you enter in GVCs through low wages. But actually, new evidence from the OECD and evidence from uh, uh, other orders, uh, old also of some years, shows that the countries that are deeply involved in GVCs are not those that have low wages, but those that have low unit labor costs, which is a completely different agenda. Uh, and finally, ICT innovation. Uh, of course, we've been used for the past uh, 40, 50, 60 years since basically the container revolution came in and then all the waves of trade liberalization to innovations that were uh, unique un un uh, or uh, one way, uh, basically, they were trade creating innovations. So they were just creating more connectivity and, and low uh, lower costs. And now we have two types of innovation, some that 
you know, that foster a bit of uh, concentration, and so they are a bit trade-defeating, uh, uh, but also plenty of other innovations that are trade-creating. And so these uh, innovations that are trade-creating are those that really push for the integration of data and manufacturing, and that's where the data services come in as an important element. So for instance, cloud computing is one of the elements where actually could and I, call, I like to say that it can neutralize geography and gives opportunities to um, un, uh, uh, un, un, unfair uh, geographical, geographically positioned places because it basically allows, um, it doesn't require agglomeration to actually deliver productivity effects uh, and employment effects. Um, and then the fourth po point is that, uh, linked to this, is that so um, a skillful strategy that combines services with manufacturing and with, uh, with data can actually slow down premature industrialization. So paradoxically, moving away from services as some policymakers in some countries uh, sometimes ask question themselves, and one is the Philippines that says, have we been going too far on uh, services? And we say, no, that's the, the most right thing you could do, but leverage on that. And, uh, and, so, um, and so basically working on, on, on that, it's important. It's important also because uh, uh, from uh, uh, getting right the services economy, and in particularly the ICT-enabled services, and understanding well how this integrate with manufacturing at home and abroad uh, can give uh, uh, scope for expansion in uh, good jobs and higher value added. And uh, one of the reasons is that the services economy faces still many more barriers uh, than the manufacturing sector. And that's uh, particularly the case in uh, professional services. Um, so uh, what do we need to do? What policies uh, are uh, really needed for that? I think, first of all, a, a philosophical approach that entering global value chains is not a panacea, is not the silver bullet, and then things will happen automatically, but is the beginning of a journey. And uh, uh, imitating old developers doesn't really help much. So nobody will reproduce the, the, the journey that China did or the Asian tigers before. Really, it's a question of finding the own journey by understanding what are the competitive advantages now and how to leverage the global economy and specialize on the comparative advantages to build increasingly capabilities. And so I think that uh, if we want to generalize what uh, needs to be done, I think there could be a four plus four uh, strategy of pro-investment, pro-skills, pro-jobs, pro-growth, uh, adapted to the, to the needs of this new century, the, of the 21st century. So the first and important thing is to really understand and invest in digital technologies and connectivity in the right way. And that means that countries have really to try to understand how to achieve a balance between access to world-class infrastructure and services and developing their own ICT industry. And this is a difficult balance to reach. I don't think it, this is easy. But it's a pro 
priority where countries have to have their own digital strategy, have to have their ICT strategy, they have to understand what infrastructure to develop and what infrastructure not to develop. For instance, data centers. A lot of countries in the developing world are still trying to develop data centers, but data centers are pretty useless in the times of cloud computing. So. Uh, um, and so we can think in disaggregated uh, on a lot. Uh, the, the second is to leverage uh, GVCs and create the, in the right enabling environment for them. And to me, the many important things, of course, at different levels of engagement, there are different types of priorities, but basically it boils down to upgrade infrastructure and connectivity, ensure regulatory certainty. Regulatory uncertainty kills any type of investments, and in particular, when there are long-term engagements as those created in global value chains, working on competition policy, uh, it's uh, extremely important, and enhancing the uh, absorptive capacities, both of public of the public uh, framework and of the do domestic firms, so that basically uh, the domestic uh, ecosystem can intercept the additional demand that is created through GVCs. They have to create the supply by, by creating the right absorptive uh, uh, landscape. Uh, the third uh, element in this strategy is to invest in uh, human capital and to reduce the barriers to knowledge. So mutual recognition to attract professionals and talent helps in services, but helps even more into leapfrogging. Um, because again, entering into GVCs will not be done anymore in the traditional way of entering at the low end with low value added jobs and then slowly moving up, but probably a lot of the opportunities will come into models where there will be leapfrogging uh, to create, uh, you know, the leapfrogging that will be based basically on a mix of indigenous innovation, targeting, targeting the domestic demand, uh, as an incubation space to be then become globally and acquire the right foreign technology which combined with the domestic knowledge can create unique solutions that can be first sold domestically but then also exported if they are if they are good uh, uh, to, to, to face the, the global competition. And finally, the last is to um, focus on, um, on uh, workers and citizens besides jobs and firms. So it is about linking productivity to distribution and economic impacts to the environmental and social impacts as a business model for sustainability. It's in, in the only one that gives this long-term space to have the development journey really start and bring to some results. Did I make it within the 10 minutes or not really? Uh, one more. Okay, perfect. <laughs> But, but, but thanks, thanks very much for, for that, Daria. There are lots of um, important poli policy prescriptions and guidance you've, you've provided. And I, I, was quite, I was quite interested to, uh, to hear you speak of the, the false... Um, uh, separation that is made between the production of goods and of services within within the, the value chain, and uh, unfortunately, um, lots of people just look at those two things as being completely separate. But I I, I think that um, your your approach would be um, quite quite valuable to policymakers. We, we, our, our last um, we we've now had uh, presentations 
from persons outside the the, the policy making. Those persons. So now we 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 will be moving to our last speaker, who would be someone actually involved with um, with policy making. I I would suspect because he is with with the, with the government, and this is um, Nigel Gwyn Evans who works with the DTI in, in South Africa and is responsible for the African industrialization agenda. Um, so he will be able to put all of those ideas, I guess, into a very, very concrete way. And I don't know whether you might also have been associated with this publication. But anyway, you'll, you'll let us know. Um, Nigel. Thank you. No, I wasn't involved in the publication, and it, uh, it really is an excellent, uh, excellent document. Um, so perhaps just to give a brief uh, background, it's most intimidating being here because, I, for one, I have Sheila Page here, who I worked for in 1992, I think, or 1993, and she had me working on uh, global trade data on old DOS uh, operating systems, and at least it was uh, post-punch cards, but it was still, uh, it was still uh, quite a challenge. And secondly, I have Brendan Vickers here, who uh, worked at the DTI for a lot longer than I did. So I've spent, uh, I've spent 20 years in the, at a, at a sub-national level, uh, working on cluster policies and uh, sectoral development, and I've been at the Department of Trade and Industry in South Africa for the two years. But it's a great pleasure to be here, and... Uh, Perhaps just a few thoughts. Uh, firstly, just on South Africa, I think, and particularly with uh, what Max was saying uh, around this global globalization backlash, I think uh, we are, as South Africa, I think we're in a challenging, it is a challenging environment. We've just slipped into a technical recession. Um, and I think the, the general feeling is that's largely because of our political circumstances which we find ourselves. And uh, Sheila was also asking me, has it, infected, has it affected investment? And it very definitely has. Uh, so it is a very, uh, it's a tough time for South Africa. Um, we've just been through, obviously, a, a serious drought over the past two years. Uh, we've uh, been impacted on by, by our political uh, factors. So, so it's, it is a very challenging space. I think also we have probably... A, a paradigm of, uh, of certainly uh, a, it perhaps a bit of an inward focus with uh, significant uh, our instant, we, we're certainly looking at defending, as my minister puts it, defending uh, the policy space that we have in terms of our, uh, our tariff uh, trade remedies that, uh, that we apply. Um, I think, as Max also mentioned, uh, a strong push around localization particularly in terms of our big infrastructure drive uh, and uh, certainly the use of targeted incentives. We have a strong, I'm part of the sectoral team, uh, although my focus is very much on Africa. My colleagues uh, focus on key sectors, which I don't think in itself is a, a negative thing. We're really trying to use perhaps a smarter uh, industrial policy and in being more, uh, more targeted, more focused, uh, around our core sectors, but I think we do have uh, a real challenge in that around capacity. And certainly as a government, uh, I sense whenever I come to Europe, I just sense this much more, perhaps not quite at the moment in Britain, but uh, 
I do sense just the the the, the sheer sort of uh, there's a lot more capacity available than we have in certainly in South Africa, and uh, we are stretched as officials. So we are we on the run. We we the the particularly those who are uh, have the capabilities tend to get stretched probably and stretch themselves in uh, too many directions. So we under pressure, and I think that uh, detracts from our ability to use let's say smart industrial. Uh, policies in the way that we should. Uh, so that's uh, just an inward focus. I think as South Africa also, we focus increasingly on the region and our trade figures. Uh, and I think I'm very interested to see the latest trade figures because Africa, uh, for South Africa, has become became the most important uh, trading partner. It overtook uh, Europe and China about two years ago. But I suspect, given what's happened in the subcontinent, we've probably slipped back slightly. So in terms of the, the importance of Africa. The big challenge, obviously, is that we, have, uh, we export uh, about uh, £20 billion worth of uh, goods to the region. We import about uh, £4, billion, £4, billion pounds, £4 billion pounds worth. So, um, so it, it is a significant trade imbalance that we well, that we that we have, and I think I want to touch on that because it does have a significant effect on the on the the region as a whole, and I think the political dynamic that uh, that that is there at the region. So maybe just moving to uh, I know uh, Jody has been particularly involved in Saku. I've focused on the South African Customs Union. I've focused very much on uh, SADC, the SADC region, and I've been very involved in the last two years on uh, what we're calling this, the SADC industrialization strategy. To some extent, this is the culmination of many years of work around trying to create a, a stronger regional market. Uh, and now the sense is that we need to, let's say, enjoy the fruits of, uh, of regional integration. And I think, to a large extent, that's not wrong. And talking, uh, you know, maybe taking, taking, uh, taking Max's point, I think for Africa, Regional trade, trade only interregional trade only represents 12% of total trade. So I think in that sense, there's nothing wrong with trying to create stronger regional markets in the sense that for Africa, it's very much around re redressing perhaps the, uh, uh, the, 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 the colonial heritage that, uh, that perhaps Africa has had with the, the rest of the world and obviously focus very much on getting extractives out. But uh, my uh, Marxist masters, I'm not going to uh, elaborate any more on that one. But I think there's no, I think in trying to create better regional markets and trying to incre increase uh, interregional uh, trade flows is in the, in the African context not a negative thing, ne negative uh, issue. And I think to some extent the the the, I suppose the, the theory is that we will move from trying to create stronger uh, national, uh, regional, and then, in, and then move into, into global value chains. And perhaps a quick example, uh, as part of the SADC industrial strategy, a key focus is on uh, agri-mining and pharmaceutical value chains. And I'm really not convinced personally that uh, certainly on the pharma value chains we're going to get... Uh, great benefits out of that. Uh, I, think for, I think any 
growth in pharmaceutical investment is probably largely going to happen in South Africa for a number of reasons. I think also in terms of mining, uh, trying to strengthen mineral value chains, there's a significant focus obviously on, uh, on, the, on supporting the, the backward and forward linkages coming out of there. I think there are many, many challenges why that's, uh, that's uh, the, the, the benefit there is going to be limited. But I do think for the, on the, particularly on the agri-value chains, I think there are significant opportunities there for, for, for growth. And I think particularly uh, we've done quite a bit of work in the past few years, uh, and there's been many studies done on particularly South Africa's role in, uh, in retailer value, in, in its retail sector, in, in South African retailers moving uh, very, very strongly into the region. And certainly as we stand, uh, the bulk of that input comes from South Africa. There's very, very limited local resourcing. And I think there's a very strong case to be made for supporting initially uh, national, uh, local uh, uh, supplier development programs into, into retailer chains, looking at the, uh, the full set of uh, uh, logistics uh, chains, looking at uh, supplier upgrading, looking at key facilities that will enhance uh, uh, access to, to the local to the South African and other, uh, other retailers, of course. I think out of that set, then, in trying to promote the, those that uh, have an opportunity to feed into regional and then into global value chains. And there's some excellent programs that are now starting to, to uh, gain traction. There's a, a new uh, World Bank program in Zambia. It's a $40 million upgrading program over four years, specifically for uh, suppliers into retailer chains. I think these are the sorts of programs that are going to start to gain traction. I think at the uh, SADC level, uh, there's probably, uh, in, in terms of this industrial strategy, uh, we have uh, uh, this industrialization strategy, a very strong focus, as I've mentioned, on, on upgrading into, into not just regional but global value chains. My concern is around questions of sovereignty. And I think South Africa, as I mentioned in the beginning, we do play a very dominant role. We've seen quite a backlash uh, against us from countries like uh, Zimbabwe and Zambia, for example. And I think this could, uh, to some extent, break down our ability at a, at a SADC-wide level to be able to create these uh, regional economies that, we, that we're hoping to. So... Perhaps in the end, it is going to be, I think, the wins, and I think it's well articulated in, in the, the Commonwealth report. I think boiling it down to a strong focus on, on upgrading, uh, in using the instruments such as cluster development, um, um, focusing on, on key uh, capabilities and centers of excellence, uh, looking at SPS issues, uh, looking at uh, fight, uh, at, uh, at quality issues. I think working on the ground, building institutional uh, capabilities both inside and outside uh, government, this is what's going to be key. We need stronger institutions in government. And perhaps also just touching on, uh, I think while in, in our sector units, probably in South Africa, we might have uh, ten, five to ten uh, uh, officials in each sector unit uh, across most of our, our member states, 
probably, there's probably no sectoral capability whatsoever. So the ability to carry out any nuanced industrial policy is very, very limited. So perhaps to wrap up, uh, I think uh, we have, we probably as a region moving more, more in uh, shifting to certainly in, in from a policy perspective to a more inward focus. Uh, but I think also being very cognizant of the, the need to move uh, into, into global, global value chains ultimately, but a real sense that we need to build our regional economies first, build up regional capabilities, uh, and then with that as a platform, then moving to, onto, in, into more global value chains. But I think the risks are high. I think the politics are challenging and uh, capacities are, are very low. So with that, thank you. Thank, thank you very much, Nigel. And I think this is very important to uh, place those concepts in the context of national, the development of national industrialization strategy and also um, uh, regional, as you pointed out, in the Southern African region. We'll be having fewer minutes than originally anticipated for questions and answers and, and uh, I would hope, a, a discussion. So what I will do is open open the floor. I won't ask any questions of my, of my own, despite the fact I've got several that I've been dying to ask. Um, but to 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 participants here, but also those who are joining us remotely, I'll take a few um, questions and comments, asking everyone to be as brief as possible, so we will be able to fit in um, several. And before you do um, ask your question or make your comment, please introduce yourselves for the benefit of those who might not know you here, but also for those who, who are joining us. Um, I think the first, um, first, we have two questions here, maybe Sheila first. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, Sheila Page, ODI. I wanted to question the concept of value chain. It's two-dimensional, and trade is not two-dimensional. It's their networks of trade. I mean, meshes, if you want to keep the metallic thing. Is it really sense? I mean, uh, Max made the point that sticking a protectionist barrier affects the whole economy, not just trade. It doesn't just affect the whole economy. It affects your neighbors' economies, your competitors' economies. I'm thinking now of my first project with Nigel, where we were looking at the effect of South Africa on its neighborhood, which remains important. And you discussed the static industrialization. Is it really useful to think about value chains? Because it's very limiting when one's looking at the effects of trade measures to look only at the two countries directly involved. Um, thank you, Director Feld, ODI. I really enjoyed all the, uh, the presentations. Um, I'd like to ask a question uh, to the whole panel, actually, but it was an issue that Jody raised. It's about taking back control. And I think we need to, as trade economists, be much smarter at thinking around what it means, taking back control. And you can think about, of course, taking back control through controlling the flows of trade. But I think what it's really meant is thinking about the, the, the taking back control of the redistribution or the distribution of the gains from trade. And I think here we need to just be much smarter in thinking about what are the policy options that we don't think about 
tariffs on trade, but we actually think about the message that Nigel uh, was talking about at the end. It's about cluster policies and the like, and that's the way we actually take back control of, of, of globalization. Thank you. Thanks, Dick. Well, I have one more here. Hi there, Liam Campling, Queen Mary University of London. Um, I was wondering if one of the things that's missing from the picture is the original focus of the global value chain or global production network kind of frameworks of which there are debates, is the question of the power of firms. Um, obviously it's there, hidden in the background, but none of you have really kind of taken that on fully. And that links to the second point, which is about the question of the capture of value. And very often we use value added as a notion that somehow Apple adds huge amounts of value. Actually, no, it's capturing value from suppliers through the chain because of its monopolistic position. And I think that that needs to be taken into more serious account. Very interesting. Dr. Gasoriak, add back. Uh, Peter Holmes from uh, Sussex University. Uh, fascinating series of um, presentations. A um, couple of quick observations. Um, on an example of, of leapfrogging, when Max and I visited Vietnam a few years ago, we were very struck by some of the people we, we met. There was a guy um, working on computer-assisted design for Nissan. They had no car factories there, but they were working directly with uh, Osaka on the design. Um, uh, later, the, the, the production came later. It was a good example of that. Um, but I, th I think so the, the one, one issue that... Uh, I mean, I, I keep saying this every time we go to these meetings, but um, uh, we always talk about adaptation and adjustment. And, I mean, our sort of old-fashioned economics actually tells us that there'll be people who are going to be permanently damaged by you know, the, the fact of the hexarolin, the, of all the stolper standards and thing. And, I mean, I don't know how we really face that. And, and one, one thing which actually follows from what, what you were saying just now um, is the... I, I said just a question, is there a possibility that the kind of sort of adjustment strategies that uh, we're likely to adopt are going to actually worsen the inequalities in the sense that, um, you know, as in Vietnam, there'll be people who can participate in the, um, the computer-assisted design projects, there were the people that won't. And in order to sort of upgrade, you'll be focusing on the clusters where you can do the things that work. And is, is there... Uh, a risk that that uh, the best you can do is in fact going to be to focus on you know the skilled in South Africa you've got some very high skill set and you've got a lot of people with very few skills and if you're really going to get you know putting the value for money wise you put it into the areas where the return is highest is is that uh, going to create a further backlash the question. Thank, thank, thank you. What, what, well, we'll have, um, I'll take one question which has come online and then we'll have uh, the panel respond quite briefly to this, and we'll have probably what might be the final round after. We've got um, Neil McCulloch, who is asking, well, specifically to Max and Nigel, but the panelists could certainly join in, is, do you think that increased protection in Africa is justified to encourage the shift towards greater domestic value added? If not, what policies should be used or is this, in fact, the wrong goal? So, to the panelists who would wish to begin, you may address all of the, all of the interventions. As you Nigel? Sure. Perhaps just to, to start off maybe with Sheila's uh, question and uh, around 
you know, are, are regional value chains, global value chains, are they really useful constructs from a policy perspective? And I would, I would say that they, from a microeconomic level, they are in the sense that it allows a particular focus on addressing the, uh, some of the market failures that, uh, that, that, uh, that exist. So maybe a, a, an example which we're looking at at the moment, South Africa imports uh, r roughly a million tons of soya every, every year. Uh, we have, uh, South Africa is not a great place for, for growing soya. Um, however, a number of our neighbors are. But due to uh, hefty uh, border, border in issues, we, are not, we do not import uh, soya from our neighbors. We import it from South America or Europe or wherever deep sea uh, imports come from. So I think what we're looking at is, could, if we look at perhaps, uh, and we're looking specifically, Zambia is a high, 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 uh, a low, potentially a low-cost producer if one can get agglomeration factors happening. Why don't we try and replace our imports from, uh, from Brazil with imports from, uh, from, from the region? And can we get the price points down to a level where we can do that competitively enough to be able to compete with... Uh, with uh, Brazilian imports. So that would be an example of where I think we, the region, if, if we had a better functioning region in terms of uh, uh, logistics and, and uh, uh, border issues, we'd be able to, uh, we'd have a, a far better functioning region and uh, these, uh, these uh, value chains would, uh, would work more effectively. So I think that would perhaps be, be an area which we... Sure, sure. But if we can do it cost effective, if we can do it competitively, that's uh, it's, it's certainly of great benefit to the region. So, okay, that's uh, just on the uh, taking back control, and I think your comment on the you know using the new tools, I think absolutely, and I think certainly in in the African context, I think the need to to really grow. Uh, institutions and, and strengthen the capacity of institutions to be able to uh, carry out uh, many of these interventions that uh, that are required to support uh, the the uh, support the market. I think that's uh, that's probably key. I think perhaps just a quick comment on Liam's point around uh, surely the power of the firms uh, and uh, the the way that they capture value. How does this play into it? Uh, perhaps a very quick comment just on uh, something that is coming through more and more at, at a, around uh, at, a, in, in, at a regional level is, is perhaps the, what we're calling the missing middle, where we're seeing uh, perhaps at the high end uh, a dominance of, of multinationals or, or large uh, corporates, and particularly in a southern African uh, position, certainly South African corporates, and then obviously uh, myriad of, of micro survivalist firms, but very, very few domestic firms that, uh, that have the capability to, to enjoy the economies of scale to, to, uh, to export. And I think that's certainly of, of big concern. And I think that voice is very much missing in, uh, in a policy context in the region and is a big, uh, is a big challenge. Um, Peter, Peter's comment, I think, just on um, 
how do you, from a policy level, perhaps start to influence uh, and give some direction to where the, uh, the benefits, which uh, sectors or which areas can, can op offer the highest benefits. Uh, I think perhaps, again, from a sectoral level, uh, we are really trying to understand that and to engage with uh, the private sector in the South African context uh, and perhaps create the incentives to, to drive skills, something like our work on the BPO sector would be a good, good example of where we really trying to incentivize specific skills uh, and very specialized skills in, in the BPO sector to take advantage of that. And obviously, India and others have done that, uh, done that very well. And then, yeah. Mary, Judy. Perhaps, yeah. Thank you very much. Um, yes, I, I certainly agree with your point, Sheila, that you know we're moving. It's, it's more about networks and tiers of suppliers, and I think that's what we've tried to get across in the publication is that things have been sliced up so much, and you know some entry level positions aren't are no longer available, and you've got um, special. In some cases, you have specialisation in particular services, and and um, some firms are beginning to branch out across countries but within the same sector so I think yeah we do pick up on that in the um, publication um, and you know there are that it, it, it brings you know the issues around who who to support how to support and all of that um, gets a bit more complicated um, on your point Dirk about clustering and kind of local governance and institutional development working with business associations I, I absolutely agree, and um, but it's it, it's it's still not easy, and um, I think your your point, um, Peter, that you know there are winners and and losers, and and some people are permanently um, disadvantaged. I think it, so. It, it's still still quite challenging um, to do. I mean, there are really quite profound labour market um, implications for because of the, the rise of GVCs, and I still don't think we've got a handle on them just yet. Um, but one point I would, would make is that um, often we talk about um, social upgrading, economic upgrading, social upgrading, um, but something that um, um, I, I've come across um, more recently and, and working with others is the point about societal society upgrade, societal upgrading. So that's different and I think it is related to the point both 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 of your points and that is um, something that does need to be um, addressed. And on your point, um, um, Liam, yeah, about the control and power and the race to the bottom. I mean this is how I'm in touch. So you, you you know you've got large buyers, they have extremely you know they're extremely powerful. You know they they dominate the market, and um, so you there is this issue around um, kind of a race to the bottom, the trade and tax issues. We do pick up on that in the publication and the kind of work that the OECD is trying to do to to rectify that. And there have been um, more recent developments there, but yeah, competition policy and and trying to um, you know trying to avoid this this damaging. Um, competition, I think, is yeah. We, we've we've touched on it, but we could do more. Yeah. Thanks. I, I would hope that um, the question from Neil about um, the desirability or the ways of protection by African countries to in, 
to ensure that there is um, greater local value added. I hope that someone could address this. Uh, Max? Perfect. Yes, yes, we'll focus on that. I mean, I think the general was the idea where the protectionism is any instances where it's justified. I think that, well, I will start from a personal point of view. I said that in general it's no. I mean, I would probably, I, but this was a sort of belief I have. But I think that there are clearly probably some theoretical analysis that says, well, you can protect and create the skills, et cetera, and then compete. That is a sort of theory. Uh, and also, they said, oh, with the political message, no, no, that the protection issue should be for a short period. But basically, what we know is that that period, that short period is extended indefinitely. And I would take the case of, of my own country, where the car manufacturing sector has been an infant industry for the last 70 years. So actually, my father is younger than the, than the car industry manufacturing in Argentina. So, and that is a sort of idea of protecting, and it has been 70 years where Argentine consumers have been paying cars twice the price that could have been paid uh, uh, abroad. So that is a seizable number in terms of welfare. But also I think that protectionism, I would say that even doesn't work in the context of, of value chain. I mean, with this idea where uh, as I said, I mean, this no longer this uh, uh, unidimension uh, 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 of, of trade, but actually this idea of a network where a protectionism measure on, on, on a particular <coughs> link affect the whole network and also affect back into the country that may have put the measure. And, and this is pointed to your to point, Sheila, about whether of the effects of uh, uh, protectionism into the domestic economy. You're right. I mean, the effects goes uh, uh, beyond the domestic economy. But I think that the message, stressing the message that the effects of protectionism is affecting your own economy is what eventually is the spearhead actually to, to attack the, 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 the protectionism. I mean, rather than say with that it's going to affect other countries, because at the end, we can say I don't care about the other countries. Uh, but saying that this is going to, at the end, affect our own country is probably a very powerful message to, to, to deliver. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so I will not touch on the first two interventions because I think they've been sufficiently well addressed. Uh, but uh, I, I can say a word around this uh, idea of protectionism, adding to that, and then the points by Leo and Peter. And uh, um, on the protectionism, actually, um, exactly because we have automation and digitalization of production, uh, if the effect of, of imposing, say, local content requirements or of other forms of localization uh, must be really thought through in detail because they might just uh, push companies <coughs> to in automate uh, increasingly. So you might retain jobs at home. Uh, but for uh, robots and not for people. And that's, uh, that's really where, uh, and I think actually Jody and her team are doing an incredible uh, work in trying to really uh, understand and, and, and bring to, uh, you know, to the policymakers the knowledge of what in this 21st century economy changes and how applying this 20th century model type of protections might, might, might actually have... Uh, uh, unwanted negative effects. Um, in uh, in terms of uh, the uh, 
the you know the capture that you can have in uh, global value chains. Um, I, I mean, I totally uh, agree uh, that uh, it's an important topic to uh, to to work on. Uh, but we also have uh, sufficient knowledge to know where this capture happens. And normally you need three characteristics. Uh, the knowledge has to be codified. It has to be transferred possibly in a book. It has to be uh, something that is well-established, mature. And that you have to have low skills of the suppliers so that there is, really needs to be this transfer, hand-holding. And then uh, it normally happens in... Uh, areas of the economy where you do not have a product distinctiveness, where you compete on prices. Um, and that type of economy exists in a lot of established uh, uh, sectors, but also in uh, new sectors. For instance, before I referred to the platform economy, and uh, if you come in uh, downstream, as a downstream player, uh, you risk to be capped captured in these modularity traps, precisely where there is uh, little product distinctiveness and you are locked down there. Uh, but the, uh, the economy uh, is much bigger than that. And uh, one characteristic that we are seeing uh, more and more is that shocks are sudden, unpredictable, and disruptive. So this type of relationships can be wiped out by new business models. Uh, so what does this, um, uh, and so what basically happens is that what we see is that the type of businesses that are able to thrive are those where, uh, I was, as I was saying before, companies really understand what is their uh, competitive advantage and trying to really uh, focus on that and to understand how to, to create uh, uh, you know, interdependencies by really uh, specializing uh, and, and becoming, uh, um, yeah, and, and becoming uh, uh, e extremely knowledgeable and competitive on that. So what this, uh, however, means is that, as I said before, we need to go more into the knowledge economy for every country. So that this model of starting at the low end, getting carried through by the value chain, and then somewhere, uh, like, Thailand did, for instance. It started with assembly, and then pretty much because everybody in the region was at war at some point or another, had zero competition, so it had sort some, con some kind of infant industry situation which allowed them to, 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 to upgrade slowly. But that's not going to happen anymore. And so what really becomes the big problem is, uh, is what uh, uh, was referred uh, to before, which is the lack of capacity to do nuanced industrial policy, which I really think that it's uh, a big barrier and, and it's a reality. We need nuanced industrial policy. We need uh, you know, to think uh, of this complex economy, but we don't have uh, uh, the, uh, the, the, the the, 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 the critical mass on the uh, government side. And, um, and finally, on the example of Vietnam, which I mean, allows me to conclude that, is uh, do we risk to create uh, more inequality more inequalities domestically? And that really goes back to my final point before, where we need to think of the sustainability uh, and so the distribution and to think about the workers. And in a way, to me, it's really, it's going to happen uh, simply because 
Um, I think in the last 20 years, we've been thinking in terms of comparative advantages of specialization. But actually, what before the world was trading on uh, varieties, mostly. And as places like China that have largely driven this specialization are getting into the more knowledge-intensive parts of the economy, they're also obliged to get inputs from the world, which are, and so face the costs that the, their competitor or companies in the US or wherever they face. And I think we will see uh, a return much more to trade in variety. If that happens, uh, I really think that, uh, you know, there will be, for those countries, developed or developing, that invest in knowledge and in uh, ICT infrastructure, and really, ICT infrastructure, I keep insisting, because it's like wanting to join the Industrial Revolution two centuries ago without uh, you know, getting into the railways or into the steam uh, technology. So we are really at that point right now. And so the, the, the countries that will manage to combine these two elements will probably succeed. The ones that are not investing in that, and mine, Italy, is one of those, will probably sink... Uh, to zero. So, <laughs> <laughs> yep. World Bank always lets us know how thing how we stand. Now, I've taken lot, lots of questions from the left. We'll have we just have time for a few more brief comments. So we'll take uh, I think maybe one or two from this side, and then the last one on the right oh, again. Thank you for the presentation. I'm Michelle Chivunga with the University of Surrey looking at digital transformation, including blockchain and a range of other uh, technologies. My question is really picking up on the point that Dario was saying around ICT and the importance of engaging with um, technologies. I just, I'm just wondering, trying to understand whether in the various countries you mentioned, there is a sense, there's an appetite to try and engage with these technologies and, and you know, if there's appetite to do that. My other second point is around capacity. The, obviously, capacity is a huge issue at the minute. I'm just wondering whether there's enough investment going in to help with capacity, especially you know, investing in younger uh, people and engaging them at early stages to look at things like you know, negotiating better trade terms, for example, in Africa and in African countries. Thank you. I think there's another question on this side. Yeah. Uh, Lily Sommer, African Trade Policy Center, United Nations Economic Commission uh, for Africa in Addis. Uh, my question's for Nigel. Um, I tend to completely agree with you that intra-African trade uh, is the way to go. Um, and I think it's important to keep in mind that regional value chains and global value chains aren't mutually exclusive. Um, of course, uh, more competitive regional value chains um, is what's attractive to, to lead firms in global value chains and also uh, regional uh, connections and linkages um, are very important to ensure inclusive global value chains, um, which is, of course, particularly important with, with the backlash against globalization. And it seems to be in a lot of platforms, um, what I've been coming across recently is that there seems to be a perception that there is this trade-off between regional value chains and global value chains. So I was just wondering, um, as a leading uh, gateway economy somewhat uh, uh, in South Africa, um, what approach is the government taking to ensure a complementarity uh, between uh, its regional integration uh, agendas and plans um, and its trade and investment partnerships with the rest of the world? Thank you. Thank you. We've got a question on this side. Oh, 
for you then. Okay, and then let's go for the middle, shall we? Um, so my name is Sophie Varlo. Um, I'm interested in what you, you said, Nigel. Um, I was really delighted to hear you bring up colonialism because I think it's a huge factor and the fact that you even had to sort of censor yourself at that point made me think where is the debate about the effects and the impacts of colonization and and, and what are we doing about that collectively and is it even a part of the debate interesting question uh, who was it not sure was someone on this side oh it's gone oh it's sorry yeah okay I'm Anna Guber from Nathan Associates. Um, given everything that's been said uh, about globalization and also Max had mentioned bigger challenges, um, perhaps ideological and cultural and the um, effects of immigration and, and, uh, and the solution being potentially through trade and improving global prosperity, what should be the role of the United Kingdom, given the situation we're in at the moment, in supporting trade um, in developing countries and in economies going forward? So from an aid for trade perspective. Thank you. Okay, good. I think this, these are the questions. What are, we, we've come to the end of, uh, of, of, of our allotted time, but I, I think with your permission, we could probably have an extra five minutes, which gives then one minute <laughs> to each of the, of the panelists. My, my, my advice would be to zoom in on just maybe one or two of the interventions in just, just one minute and, and wrap up at the same time. Probably start with you, Daria. I'll pick the first one on new technologies and if there is appetite. I think there is appetite. What is missing is the understanding on uh, how to tap on that appetite. And uh, uh, I think the, the message we try to give is that it's not about necessarily only creating new technical knowledge and engineering, but really look at the full, uh, a full range of even soft skills, languages, managerial practices, and even the human sciences, which allow to create experts that do not necessarily produce this technology, but are able to navigate the complexity of it. In terms of capacity in the public government, I think the main problem is probably the low wages uh, in, uh, in the public sector, in a lot of countries that make uh, um, an, uh, an appealing uh, to go and work for the public sector, in particular in those countries where there are uh, protected the professional services or, for instance, financial services, and so there are rents and the salaries in those protected um, services are, um, you know, are basically crowd out uh, demand from other sectors. Thank you. Next. Yes, briefly on, on, on the role of the UK on, on this. Uh, I think definitely it has a role, and we expect that actually it's a very active role. But I will put this uh, uh, within basically two things to consider. First is that the influence of the UK in, in, in trade and development is substantially smaller than it was. Um, more important that many people actually think it has. Uh, I think that is very important. And the other thing is that anything that the UK might do uh, uh, in terms of trade and, and, and development, I think it would be a, a good idea to be based on what the beneficiary countries want to get from that. So I think that two things, basically. Be realistic about the the the, the the influence that the UK might have, but also paying attention on what the beneficiary countries want from that. Thanks. Thanks. 
Judy? Yeah, thank you. I'll just pick up, um, just to follow on from Max's point about the, and then the question there. Um, I would just emphasize this, this the, the point that I was making in the presentation about better understanding how we're integrated in GVCs using the existing databases, but then also trying to go a bit beyond that. I think there's a really urgent need um, there. And then, you know, focus on trade costs, because I think however you cut it, trade costs are going to rise. So we need to start um, sensitising both importers and exporters. That really um, should be a focus. And then the point about new technologies and, and blockchain, um, yeah, I, I, I um, very well welcome that one. I'm not sure if you know, but the um, Global Aid for Trade Review, the, the theme of it this year, and it's um, next week, I think, is on connectivity. So, you know, people are, are quite excited about digital trade and the potential there. Um, but there's also concerns around kind of legal frameworks and, and some security as, uh, um, aspects as well. Thank you. Thanks. Right. Uh, just to just a few points quickly. Uh, I think the, the point, again, on the digital, I think there's some great examples in Rwanda, uh, Kenya, Mauritius. I mean, they're really pushing the boundaries, and I think uh, they're leading the way. I think there's a lot more that can be done there. Uh, just... Um, Lily's point on uh, the they're not uh, regional and, and uh, global value chains are not mutually exclusive. I think that's a, it's a really excellent point. I think, as I mentioned, I think the big issue is how one can uh, identify and, and uh, help to shift, help value chains, help companies within value chains to, to move, uh, move from from regional to, to global. I think that's the, that's the big focus and all the support that's required around those firms to, to get there. Uh, perhaps Sophie's point on colonialization. I think it is still, uh, I think it is still a, a, a big issue at, at a regional level. Uh, and I think there is a sort of under, undertow that comes through. But I think it's become more nuanced also, not just around what... Uh, what happened in the past, but I think now questions around China, South Africa's, let's say, uh, role in the region. But I think politics are very, very significant at a certainly at an African context, and I think have the uh, ability to perhaps derail any good uh, 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 progress that's made. So I think uh, I think it's uh, still a very important issue at a that's certainly it in the Southern African uh, context and I think at a global level. Then uh, Anna's question just on uh, having come out of uh, a Wilton Park session which uh, Max and I were at, I think the, the big uh, point which came through was do as, we, do as we say, not as we do in terms of the UK's uh, view. But I think the one thing which struck me is that uh, for, the, for the UK they have an opportunity now to perhaps uh, move out of some of the protectionist uh, trends that have come through uh, in terms of things like fruit exports. So, whereas uh, Spain have got us to block, uh, have blocked uh, citrus exports because of black spot, which uh, doesn't have any meaningful effect. Now, obviously, it allows the UK to have a more flexible, perhaps, uh, approach. So, whether that happens, I don't know, but that's possibly the opportunity that comes through. Thank you.
Thank you. I, I really m must express appreciation to the panelists for their very enlightening set of, of presentations. I was, I was quite fascinated, and I must say I've, I've learned quite a lot. And so I'm sure some of you would have uh, would would have learned um, some things new. And um, our our online audience, I, I, I do want to thank you. Um, we we did have um, one question from someone out, out there. Um, so well, do remember you can continue this discussion because there will be an opportunity. And I understand via the ODI website to continue to provide um, some sorts of insights and your own insights and 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 comments um, I, you you would be able to get the well those of you who are online would already be on, on, on the site so I don't need to provide you with any further information on that so finally then thank you very much for your participation and um, I, I do hope that some of the policy ideas that have been have emerged might some uh, in some way affect uh, the direction of of, of things, I'm, I, I would hope, but this does not happen. That maybe some some major politicians might have been listening to this, but probably doesn't get on to Fox News. So little chance of that. Thank you all very much. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. <laughs>